Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get on to my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host Omar Crook. Happy Monday to you all. I'm recording this on Saturday here in Los Angeles and it's raining, which I mean, that's like a once a year event. So it's very exciting. I set up my rain barrels. I don't know if you heard the last podcast, but I told a story about my the rain barrels that I got. I got two. One of them is for fresh water in the garage for the uh, impending Armageddon that we'll probably see in the next couple months. And uh, the other one's to collect rainwater. Of course, it's leaking. So, uh, you know, there's always something. Mon- I mean, yesterday, I, I did this interview yesterday, which was Friday. And, uh, boy, I had a weird day. I had a weird day. And I talk, I talk about it right at the top of the podcast. So I think you're going to find that really exciting. I, and I noticed that uh, it, it didn't bother me so much, which was really odd because I get really wound up about about things like that. And I, and I realized yesterday, and I was thinking about it today, that I need to focus more on gratitude. I know that seems to be kind of the catchword of 2016, that and disaster. I mean, it's like two sides of the same coin. But, um, I, you know, I think I'm becoming a glasses-half-empty kind of guy. The older I get, the more pessimistic I become, and, and I need to turn that around. So I'm putting myself on notice here in front of everybody that I need to focus on gratitude. Uh, Franz Manfredi, a, a, a husband of one of my friends, um, Adriana, who I've had on the show, is deeply into meditation, and he's now teaching meditation and guiding, uh, you know, guided meditation classes and things like that. And he posted a, a thing on Facebook a few days ago that gratitude is an exercise, and that really that really stuck with me. I think that's true with with anything that's really valuable in life. You got to work at it. You know, if you want to have a, a happy relationship, a good marriage, you've got to work on it. It, do, it really doesn't happen on its own, and you have to do things that are uncomfortable. You have to change the way you th- think about things, which is difficult to do. And uh, so anyway, I don't know. I'm boring myself now. So why don't we get to the podcast? Anthony Roth Costanzo. Terrific guy. Uh, Great interview. It was short. We were running a little bit late. So it's, you know, I think it's around 40 minutes. But we cover a lot of ground. I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did. I want to thank you all for listening. Here's Anthony. Hi. How are you? Sorry, I'm, I'm good. Late. It's okay. Great to see Great you. To see How's you your day going? But, well, weird. It's been a little bit weird, Check honestly. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. How's your day going? Weird. How come? Well, uh, so I've got I've got a couple of kids. Yes. I've got a, a four-year-old and an almost one-year-old. Wow. And uh, if you ever decide to have kids, uh, for some reason, you're going to find yourself at these birthday parties all the time. Oh, no. And so uh, on my way to the birthday party with my son, the, I've, I've got a, I drive an older Mercedes, and mm. it looks like the gas gauge is not reading properly, so I ran out of gas on the way. So that started off really well. That's not good. And uh, I got here and realized I didn't have any credentials, so I had to pay to get into park. Oh, no. And then I, I pulled my bag out of my seat and ripped my cup holder right out of the console. <laughs> so it's been a day. It's been one of those days. It's been kind of weird. It's yeah. Karma will come back. Yeah, I hope so. Time. Yeah. I hope so. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to yeah. talk to you. Um, uh, tell me about your day. What's happening? Um, I've been working on these shows coming up 
musically first and then the shows that I'm producing. Uh, so there's just a lot going on. Oh, tell me about that. Um, I'm producing a show next summer at the National Sawdust, which is this really cool venue in New York um, mm -hmm. and very cutting edge in terms of doing new, exciting things, but also has some wonderful people who you might consider establishment. Uh, and the show I did last summer, we're taking to Salzburg to the State Theater next month or in a week. We start rehearsals, a piece of Matt O'Coin's, uh, and he's conducting the debut and also Gluck's Orfeo paired together in this production. Oh, yeah. You know, I had Matt on the podcast last week and, and he talked about that, oh, cool. that project. I didn't know that you were involved as well. Yeah. So I, um, I'm starring in and producing that project in Salzburg for the State Theater there. And so, yeah. Is this something new for you, pr producing? Um, it's something I've been doing in one way or another since I was at Princeton in college. Uh, as an undergrad there, I put on a show for my senior thesis. Okay. And... Um, it turned into something bigger than I could have imagined. Uh, I involved artists, professional artists um, of some renown, like choreographer Carol Armitage and filmmaker wow. James Ivory, and you know some really great people um, who are willing to donate their time, but in order to make the costumes or make the set or mm -hmm. make the uh, production look the way that they wanted, we needed a little bit of cash. Sure. And uh, thus began my sort of uh, foray into producing first in the university context. And then I've now applied some of those things in various other contexts over the past decade uh, to my artistic life. That's unbelievable. So when you, when you say produce, you're really meaning you're really saying that you're paying for it. Well, or I'm, you're finding the money, you're raising the money. I'm raising the money, but I'm also in this case, uh, curating it, putting wow. things together, getting the artists who I want to collaborate and also trying to facilitate their collaborations, um, both in terms of ideas and collaborating sure. on the artistic product and also in terms of, you know, everything from sure. small, you know, finding people flights or, you know, th those kinds of things to finding the money and um, finding partnerships that, that make things work. I like to say that I can now try and create win-win situations for right. everybody, uh, for a presenter and an artist or uh, for an audience. And, and that's a uh, real trick in this business. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's really something. Is this, is this something that you're pursuing hoping to kind of segue into something else once you leave singing behind? Or is it something you want to continue to do side by side or, you know? I, everything is possible. Um, you know, you I, hope I, I don't have a plan. Yeah. I hope to be singing for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of irons in the fire in that sense. Mm -hmm. I, I feel particularly um, interested in creating material that expands what people's conception of opera is, mm -hmm. that is just good art, plain right. and simple, and that also um, uh, connects to who I am as, a, as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that sort of combination of things uh, in conjunction with my experience, I ran a dance company for a couple of years when I got out of college as the executive director and raised millions of dollars for them. And so, you know, I have some sense of what fundraising is, what marketing is, what, what you know. What things cost, sure. Yeah. And um, as I continue on as a countertenor, mm -hmm. you know, I love being able to work at places like LA Opera and the Met, and these institutions mm -hmm. um, that are where great opera careers flourish. Right, and steeped in tradition of some sort. Yeah. And also steeped mm -hmm. in tradition and, and that have the resources to do these huge scale things. As a countertenor, though, you don't get to do a show a year mm -hmm. at the Met because you're a soprano and they can find something for you. You know, uh, they often don't have anything that I could be in, even if they did cast me. Right, right. Um, so this is true of all 
larger theaters and uh, many smaller theaters mm -hmm. too. And as you start to figure out what your career path is as a countertenor, um, my solution in, in some sense has been to generate opportunities. That's right. um, and to generate them not in a sort of um, vanity project kind yeah. of way. No, mm -hmm. but rather to say, okay, here's an artist that I really like. Um, for example, right now, I'm creating this new thing with Christopher Alden, who's a wonderful director. And um, I want to work with this composer, uh, you know, Matt O'Coyne or Greg Spears or Mark Gray, all of these wonderful people that I've been working with. Uh, and and we have an idea to do this with this choreographer and you know where could that happen and mm -hmm. then you wind up if you as your career goes along knowing people and saying mm -hmm. uh, oh I think you might be interested we can in this make it happen. yeah yeah mm -hmm. and they say well well we need ten thousand dollars more and I say well I know a couple of people who I think are interested in this work and so that's uh, a way forward I think that's really interesting yeah it's let's fun. Uh, let's go back uh, you mentioned being a countertenor and how your career has progressed. I want to, I want to hear how you became a countertenor. When did that, when did that happen? Have, have you been studying music since you were a child? First of all, I started taking piano when I was about six, and I had mm -hmm. an amazing teacher who mm -hmm. said, um, "How about singing?" <laughs> and I, I guess I was not very good at the piano, and so I started singing. Yeah, and uh, I loved it, and I started doing musicals, and I did Broadway, uh, you know, in New York when I was eleven to about thirteen. I sort of went big time. Yeah. But by the time I was thirteen, uh, someone had asked me to be Miles in the Turn of the Screw, mm -hmm. and I loved this what opera a, what a so great much. Show. And I was so fascinated having two psychologist parents trying to understand the James and understand Britain's interpretation of the James and what was really going on. Sure. And um, that was such a great, deep experience. And I realized the potential for emotional expression in mm -hmm. this art form. Even at that young age, I realized that it was somehow, um, it was something that really drew me to it. Yeah. And so uh, I, I started going down the path of opera. And it was about then that someone said, I think you may have gone through puberty. Are you sure that you're maybe not a countertenor? And I didn't know what that was. Right. But I looked it up. And, you know, if you're a successful, quote unquote, boy soprano, you want to keep singing for as long as you can. Sure. So this was a good way to keep singing high. And I did. And I've really never turned back. I never was a baritone. I never was a tenor. Um, I certainly have that register, sure. um, but I've never sung very much in that in area. A, more of a chest I, voice. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I use it now in as a, in contemporary music. A lot of composers write me things that are down in the baritone sure, range. Sure, sure. But um, so I, I have a sense of what to do. But I I never sang that way exclusively. I've been a countertenor, you know, and or a treble. As yeah. long as I can remember. Now I uh, I've spoken to another countertenor that came through LA Opera, uh, John Holiday. Yeah. And uh, I made the big mistake of assuming that his registration was a fortified falsetto, uh -huh. uh, which is what I hear in your voice, where it's up above the chest and mix, and it's it's really a, a, a placed up here. Yeah. You know, in a falsetto, in a very firm falsetto. Mm -hmm. uh, and John uh, sings in his full voice, and so. I'm, and I mean, granted, John's voice is, his speaking voice is so high. Mm. Um, was there ever a point where you had to figure that out, or did were you always just singing in that in that registration? Was that always comfortable for oh, you? Oh no, I had to figure so many yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, I okay. still am figuring them out. Okay, but uh, no, I mean uh, that's very interesting. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, every countertenor is so different, so I don't know what John means by full voice, and I'd love to ask him. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I do think what I do, so I won't speak for countertenors in general because I don't want to make the same mistake, but the falsetto um, is, you know, looked down upon by countertenors, I guess, because it means false little voice, but that's what it is in reality. Right. And every man has a falsetto. Sure. And I think the other interesting thing I always say is, you know, women who sing opera mm -hmm. sing mostly in their head voice, quote right. unquote. Now, of course, they, they go down to chest. I think the head voice is the same thing. Mm -hmm. I don't even think it's analogous. It is a falsetto. Mm -hmm. It's just that a woman's vocal cords are by nature shorter mm -hmm. uh, or more, so they don't Slender. have to stretch mm -hmm. them. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it goes higher. Um, and what we're doing is sort of putting them on their edge or stretching them so that it's so that the longer chords can get up higher there, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. just like longer piano strings are lower. Mm -hmm. And so we have to stretch them more like you would a rubber band and then you pluck it and it goes higher. Sure. Uh, so um, we're all doing the same thing. It's just that the men, the, the chest voice is farther separated and the natural sort of placement is not as high. Mm -hmm. So I, I, whether you call it falsetto or head voice, mm -hmm. I don't care. I, right. I mean, it is in my my opinion a falsetto. Now right. I'm preparing the Messiah right now uh, as I do every year. And then I go, why can't I just, why can't it just stay where it was last year? <laughs> um, but uh, there are lots of low things in that. And, um, and it takes us to the subject of Handel and the castrati. Yeah. Uh, and, are you, I'm sorry, are you singing the alto? I'm singing the alto. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the castrati, I sing a lot of their repertoire in the Baroque. There are so many Bs and As and below middle C and things that are, you know, mm -hmm. that you think, well, I could sing it in head voice, but for Julius Caesar, that's so wimpy. Right. Is that what they you wanted? Can, well, you can't produce enough sound. No. I mean, yeah. And I've always mixed or put it in chest or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. um, or some combination of those. But what I think is fascinating is if you go listen to a recording of the last castrato, mm -hmm. and admittedly, he was not the greatest. Right, right. He was also, he was not that old. He was only 44. People think he was much older. But yeah, he sounds so much older. No, yeah. he was not that old, but uh, part of it is the style of the time and the recording technology and all that. Sure. But if you listen past all of that mm -hmm. and past the actual quality of the voice. All the technical things. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What you're hearing is that he is chesting or mixing up to an A, even sometimes higher mm -hmm. above middle C. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear mezzo-sopranos do that some of the time. I mean, I don't know what every mezzo-soprano does, and some people are so seamless you can't tell, but someone like Stephanie Blythe, I'm sure she mixes up higher than I mix or, you know, but my point being, I don't think that Handel would have written for the castrati, assuming that their head voice, their falsetto, whatever that was, mm -hmm. was carrying all the way down. I think, in fact, the castrati had, just like we do as boy sopranos, a chest and a head voice, and their chest voice, because they didn't go through those hormonal changes, was higher. Right. And more like a woman's chest right. voice. And so they might have been more like, And they you can know, sing up in that octave in the same range, yeah. And they can right. do that same thing. So I think that Julius Caesar is mm -hmm. not singing those A's and B's in a head voice. And mm -hmm. so then you get this kind of, you know, barely phonating countertenor. Right. And that's why I like this sort of full-blooded mixed voice. And I think in that sense, that's probably what John is talking about, that the voice is a complete thing. It's not just that right. we sing only in this falsetto. Voice, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. Interesting. Do you find that, uh, that the voice... Well, I, I guess it's a strange question because I, I always gauge the, the my voice uh, and how and the 
the wear and tear that I put on my voice based on all the different registrations and the different tessitura. And the, do you find that the countertenor repertoire is written you know, within smaller parameters, or do, does it have a wide range of expectations like like everybody else does my repertoire right right now yeah. uh, i mean last season i did six world premiere productions not counting the concerts with premieres so it's half new music and half old music I and see. the new music is anybody's guess you know mm. four octaves has happened before so you know it's um the parameters in terms of that are very different. Something like Akhenaten is limited in range right. in a, to a certain extent. It's basically E to E. Mm -hmm. It's one octave. Mm -hmm. um, now, finding all the colors within that, I like to warm up both below and above that. It's not that I just keep my voice in yeah. so that I can you pull. You have a cushion around everything. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I can pull. But, but uh, I was working on things for Salzburg and for Berlin and, and for these things coming up. And the range is radically different. Hmm. And then you get to the Messiah, which is a sort of lower set for the alto. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, I actually ornament a little bit above, but I don't think it really goes above a D mm -hmm. or maybe an E. Um, and so, and it goes quite low and it sits quite low. And so you, I, for me, I constantly have to be stretching both ends of the right. register when I warm up because I want to be able to do this stuff for contemporary composers where they say, you know, sing this A, I know you can do it, or this G sharp, mm -hmm. loud and long. But I also don't want to pull my voice so far up that when I get to the Messiah, I can't have a smooth, beautiful, lower counter tenory right, sound. Right. Do you ever do you ever run into vocal trouble when you've got two things that you're having to study at the same time that that are not related uh, vocally? I used to all the time. Yeah. And what I've realized is that you, you, um, if you keep both ends alive, uh, it's actually healthy for both. So I used to sort of think, okay, I'm, I'm doing this lower roll. I'm going to just keep everything down here and not sing anything higher. But actually, it's like stretching your muscles. The more you stretch them, the more flexibility there is. Mm -hmm. um, so I found uh, I was sticking with Akhenaten at the beginning of this run, just only singing that, really focused on that. Mm -hmm. Then. The Akhenaten got sort of stale feeling. And so halfway through rehearsals, I started practicing other things. And then it sort of re-energized it. Right. And I thought, okay, no, you know, it's always a reminder that it's better to vocalize at very least, if yeah. not practice things that use the full range of, of just motion. Generally, yeah, just generally exercising your voice from top to bottom. Yeah. And it'll prepare you for whatever you're studying. I think so. Yeah. That said, if I'm going to sing the Messiah, I'm probably not going to spend the day before singing a whole bunch of A's. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's about when you do it and how you do it and, and all sure. of that. Let's talk about Akhenaten. I, uh, my mom saw it. She comes to see all the shows. Okay. She loved it. Great. She was really impressed uh, with your f uh, physicality, the way that you move on stage. She said it was mesmerizing. Okay. The way she, she, I mean, this is for my mom, frankly. How do you go down the stairs looking straight ahead with your feet flat, one foot after the other, and not fall on your face? I, and don't I told know. her practice. <laughs> uh, and willpower. Right. It's, I, you know, it could happen tomorrow. You never know. But it's. Um, I think what's challenging about this show, I mean, apart from the music and the vocal stuff, is the physicality takes in a tremendous amount of focus. Mm -hmm. Because 
um, it's sort of like patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time. Mm -hmm. You want to keep the focus in the face and the emotion of, of the moment, mm -hmm. but also you are stepping down those stairs. Now, I have little tricks, like I can slide my heel down the back of the stair mm -hmm. so that it gives me a little extra stability. Um, I make sure that I have done my legs at the gym two days before, but maybe not the day before. Right. And, you know, so you're not trembling as you go so down. So I'm not trembling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's also, um, yeah, I, I think it's really about focus. And, you know what and I mean? you have a dance background. I would, uh, I've done some uh, yeah. dancing on Broadway. I did tap dancing and, you know, um, I've worked with a tremendous number of choreographers uh, whom I love and dancers, mm -hmm. um, and they're a big part of my life. So mm -hmm. I feel connected to that world. Right, right. And what about the nudity? What's that about? I have a theory, but I'd like to hear yours. <laughs> I'd like to hear yours. Um, you know, it's evolved. I think the original idea was that everyone is so costumed. You know, you're in a big costume, and yeah. and and then you have this this reveal of this person who consequently feels incredibly not just naked, yeah, but vulnerable. like completely naked, yes, vulnerable. Yes, and if you think of this guy who's 17 taking over a kingdom, but in a couple of years he's going to say. I'm not only taking over this kingdom, I'm moving it to a different location. Right. I'm I'm changing the way. I mean, this changing is, a religion, literally. Yeah. yeah. And so in thinking about who he was yeah. and what his psychology, I mean, what was he thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't believe, but I don't, but we really don't know. But for this show, at least, mm -hmm. I don't believe that he was this incredible megalomaniac mm -hmm. dictator. I think he was really trying to save, at least part of him was trying to say, this is the enlightenment that I, I see, and mm -hmm. I see a bunch of corruption with the priests and the way that society is running. So I, I'm trying to bring you to this new place. And so in portraying him not as a zealot, but rather as a human, right. um, it's very effective. And I also think there's nothing sensational about it. I mean, we uh, all no, like, I totally agree. Of course. We like to t joke about it. And I joke with all my friends who come and, you know, we have a huh. good time. But I think the reality is in the moment and in the show and, and the fact that I can look out and see the audience, there aren't that many people turning to their seatmate and whispering or, you know, uh, the reality is that it is a sort of a, a moment of chilling honesty and vulnerability mm -hmm. and that sets up for me the portrayal of this character as he then gets every robe and every gilded crown and you know mm -hmm. all of these things and then pairs it down and you know gets killed and gets resurrected all of these things but we start with him as a human right i totally agree and uh, uh, my mother and and two or three of uh, friends of mine who have come to see the production all agree with that they they say it's a really powerful beautiful uh, mesmerizing moment mm -hmm. in the show and I, I see it as as Akhenaten's uh, uh, rebirth yeah. uh, but he's being born into a god in a way and this is the this is the last vestige of his humanness in some way where he's gone from a boy to a king to to the sun god I like that and I think there is a real ritual because it is the funeral of his father mm -hmm. where he is then also being crowned in the mm -hmm. coronation and I think you're right I think that narrative of him not just being a son of Amenhotep III but now this transformation into the great pharaoh and eventually into a god 
um, we we see we see it 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 puts that in front of us. And what's so great about this production is, as you know, there are no super titles. Mm-hmm. Um, the storytelling is in the visual world, right? And in the Philip Glass score, before each scene, there are these little synopses of what's happening in the scene. Mm-hmm. And then the ancient Egyptian that we sing, or the Aramaic that you sing, mm-hmm. or that the Hebrew, or you know, yeah, the Akkadian, yeah. Akkadian, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's it talks about and illustrates what's happening, but it does not, in fact, tell narrative. So we have to create the narrative in our performance mm-hmm. and in the visual landscape. And I think this is a really great way of doing it. I agree. It's one of the most exciting shows. I mean, we we, we get, I think everybody in this business at some point gets a little bit sick with experience, you know, when you've done so many Beethoven nines, and I love Beethoven nine. Uh, I love Orff. I mean, but you do them enough where you're ready for something new. And we've done the same Bohem twice in, in 10 years. We've done the same, you know, this and that. And when something like this comes along, like Barry Kosky's uh, Magic Flute, uh, this, uh, Akim Fryer's Got to Dimmering, those types of things, I just, I go bonkers for it. Yeah. Just just because, I mean, it's novel, first yeah. of all, and it's very challenging. Yeah. Uh, le- learning how to toss a ball and and figure out what comes next is very hard. It is, and I think it's that way for all of us. But I think it's that sort of suspension of focus. You know what I mean? The the, the suspension in the air of our focus as a group mm-hmm. trying to do this that makes the tension for three hours sort of really exciting for the audience and yeah. it makes it fly by I think I mean I've never seen it yeah. and certainly that's not everyone's experience but a lot of my friends who don't go to the opera come see it and they go I know it felt like it was over really everybody's fast. saying the same thing yeah. yeah all of my friends are saying the same thing uh, did you work with Philip Glass before this experience uh, before Agnaughton no, no I never worked with him I'd been a huge fan yeah. since I had seen Einstein on the beach in my formative years mm-hmm. and um, and so you know I was excited and a little intimidated to take this on. And especially when he told us at the last minute he was coming in London where we premiered this production, it was scary. But here I got to relax a little bit because he, he'd seen me once and I, I I'd met him once. And so we actually spoke like normal human beings. Right. And um, to be able to be close to an artist like that and I mean, not that we're close, but I sure. mean to have the proximity and the ability to interact with someone and, and of, collaborate in yeah. some way, yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's totally thrilling, yeah. you know. And I'm I'm a total I'm a total Philip Glass fan. Not everyone is, um, but I see its place in the firmament, and I respect it, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any other projects with with him coming up, or is it is just kind of? Uh, I ho- I hope this will continue for a long time, and there are many other ideas I have. So you never know what might happen. Yeah, that's right. So tell me what you're preparing for now. You're going to Salzburg. I'm going to Salzburg yeah. to do this piece of Matt O'Coins and also Gluck's Orfeo. Yeah. But before we rehearse that, then I go to San Francisco Symphony, sing the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Then I go back and rehearse in Salzburg. Then I sing before we open in Salzburg. I sing Le Grand Macabre mm-hmm. with Simon Rattle and Peter Sellers. Yes, at, he was just here, I think. Yeah, yeah. with the. Uh, yeah. Berlin, and we do that in London at the LSO with at the Barbican, and then we uh, t- then I go open Salzburg, and then I go to Berlin to do it with the Philharmonic there, uh, and then um, go back to New York for a concert, and then off to Finland to do Kaya Sariaho's newest opera, um, which will be very exciting with Peter Sellers also directing that, mm-hmm. and then um, 
I'm not sure when this will air, and but then a really exciting Baroque opera at yeah. a summer festival. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it yet, but okay. I mean, I, I don't know when they're announcing. Oh, it, I so. see. I understand. Yeah. So what I'm getting here is that you're constantly traveling. It's a lot of traveling. Uh, what about your personal life? How do you manage that? Are you are you lonely? How I'm does that totally work? lonely all the time. But I I also have found that at every show here in Los Angeles. Yeah. 10 friends come and you know I don't know that many people so there's a way in which the community keeps you alive and we've had a great community within our cast which has been yeah. wonderful um, but it is it's very lonely I mean I mean do I, you have a steady partner do you have a, a, I don't so at the moment uh, yeah I mean for the most part I have people that are anchors for me sure. in some romantic or partner like sure. way sure um, but uh, yeah it's it's very tricky because you start dating someone or you are dating someone yeah. and then you go away for eight months. Exactly. And um, you could fly them to see you if they're interested in that. But it's a question of have you established that connection? Yeah. And then you have some people who understand that and, yeah. um, you know, who are, you know, in New York where I live. And uh, then then it then it becomes something different. But I feel um I mean, are you okay with that right now? Or how long is that going to last? Because I, I did it for a couple of years. Yeah. And I was dating the girl who I, I'm married to now, who's my wife. We have two kids. And we, we almost didn't make it, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I was gone, like you said, six, eight months out of the year. And, uh, you know, it's tough. It's very tough. I think when I, I used to be very, very nervous about, because I wanted to get married and I wanted to just yeah, right? get it settled and get it, you know, have yeah. a partner. Um, and... I've realized that I that really got me nowhere, uh, the the worry. And I've realized that I meet a lot of great people. And when one of the things that I have going, you know, as a sort of steady thing in New York becomes the right thing, or mm -hmm. if I meet the right person, mm -hmm. I will know it and I'll be ready for it and mm -hmm. I'll make it happen. And the the farther you get in your career, um, you realize things like, okay, well, I'm gone nine months to make money. So right. I have to spend some of that money to fly this person out or... Uh, to find you know, some balance. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine also, you know, I, I I was lucky enough to save, save, save and buy my apartment in New York and it sits there and I give it to friends or rent it out mm -hmm. to... Uh, I'm, I mean, I don't rent it because I have a co-op, so I don't technically rent it. No, of course But not. I just give it to my friends sure. uh, when I'm not there. But when I... Um, when I have a partner who wants to live there and mm -hmm. then if they have a job that they can that has some flexibility they can travel mm -hmm. to see me or if not they can just come on a weekend it's tricky though you know it's tricky to find somebody who um doesn't feel like they're at your beck and call yeah type, you know that's uh, it is it's really it's tricky. very complicated to balance yeah. so uh, that's why i'm sort of in no hurry to find it yeah but rather um to let it evolve naturally yeah i mean I don't think about things in black and white terms of I'm making a choice to have a career as a singer rather than have a romantic mm -hmm. life or things like that because ultimately um, I think I would be very unhappy if I weren't engaged mm -hmm. in every possible way I could be mm -hmm. in making art. Um, so the people... It's easy to fall into that trap too. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and the people that I've found who understand that about me are the people who have endured in mm -hmm. one way or another. Mm -hmm. I feel that way. Uh, I think that's part of this podcast as, uh, you know, I have off time in the summer. I don't have an agent anymore. I don't go out and sing like I used to. So I have all this extra time. I mean, I've been to film school mm -hmm. to try and f fill that hole. I've started this podcast in some way to try and fill that hole. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Um, 
are there certain habits that you have in every city? Well, I remember when I was traveling as a as a as a soloist, I, I would always, you know, find uh, find the local coffee shop or find, like I had these habits that I'd always try and do our museums. I love museums, so I'd always find the Modern Art Museum. I love museums too, and I try and do everything. I do fall into these habits, especially I I'm the kind of singer who eats during the performance, like at every oh, really? intermission. Yeah, I because I I guess because I'm small, you know, I I need the fuel. Yeah. So yeah, you know, between Acts One and Two of Octat, and I go back and I eat. What do you eat? Um, what well, is it? Uh, right now it's like chicken breast and <laughs> sweet potato yeah. and you know things like that. It's like a meal. Yeah, it's like yeah. a meal. Yeah, yeah. It's not you know I'm not skimping on the food. Yeah, and an apple and you know all of these things. Um, but before each performance, like in the afternoon, I generally wherever I am in the city, I find my favorite place. In L.A., it's this place called Pine and Crane. Oh, I don't know it. Oh, it's so good. You've got to go. Yeah. And Is they it here have in downtown? Sort of, yeah, they uh -huh. have really elegant, elegant Chinese food, um, like, you know, incredibly fresh. So I always get, and I've gotten into my habit and I get the same thing. This, it's called three cup chicken and um, pea sprouts. Yeah. And, you know, I sit at home and I have this big lunch and then I'll go to the same place and get my little package of chicken and sweet potato thing yeah. and an apple. And I'll bring that and, you know, it doesn't matter whether I'm hungry, but I eat it because that's the routine. Now, is that, a, is that, Partly superstition. I used to fall into terrible superstitions. I think everything is partly superstition. Is it? I mean, I have many, many superstitions. Depending on how intimate you want to get, from a uh, very intimate. Okay, I mean, good. come on. Uh, so you know, I will. Um, I will. Uh, I have to sleep eight hours. Okay. Whether and you're singing or not, just every night. That is that is how That's I. That's the goal. If I don't get sick if I sleep eight hours, and okay. it's an, a tremendous amount of horrible annoying work for me because I will wake up after six hours and be ready to get up. I'm one of those people. Yeah. And so then I spend the next three hours to four hours trying to get the additional two hours of sleep. Right. Okay. So that means I have to leave myself like a 10 hour window <laughs> to get eight hours. Sure. And it's a horrific. Yeah. Um, I also don't, do, I don't, uh, how, what's the way you would say that? I don't, um, come to bring anything sexually to fruition yes. the night before a show. Okay, like a boxer. Yeah, All like right. a boxer. Okay. And maybe it's complete superstition. I, I don't know. I don't think so. But there's a sort is. of tension that I sure. feel. And when I when I do it close to a show, um, whether alone or with someone, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a kind of, you know, it's yeah. sometimes harder for me to get engaged in the sure. performance energy. Um, I don't think that's superstition, actually. Yeah. And what I don't like is when the nerves come, but they don't energize you. They just sort of sit on top of a tire. How lethargy. do you deal with that? Um, I, because I've gone, I had to go to a psychiatrist, the whole thing. I had this performance anxiety in college that was uh, just totally debilitating. I've been through that too, and I've been through all of it. I realized at some point what it was about for me was, yes, yesterday I sang so well, yeah. but today's the day of the show and my voice doesn't feel good. Yeah. And now I've lost it and I, it was so good and it yeah. was this sort of remorse mm -hmm. combined with the anxiety. And I realized that you know when you get to the theater, what you have to think is, okay, this is what I've got and I'm here and I'm not sick, so it's not that I'm canceling. I just have to do the best I can mm -hmm. with what I have. Right. And, you know, if it's a night that Philip Glass is here, it's the night that Philip Glass is here. And I'm going to do the absolute best I can. With all the tools with, that I've been trained to yeah. have. And, 
And that's all that I can really do. Does it ever just crash and go down the tubes? It hasn't recently, but it might. And there are no, certainly- No, I mean, in the past, have you oh, had to deal with past, that? Oh, in the past, of course. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, nothing has been so detrimental that I felt it's really ruined my career. Right, or added to your anxiety. Or... There's a funny story. I was doing something at Carnegie Hall once, and I was having one of those days. Yeah. And I was sitting uh, before I sang on the side thinking, now, if I faint, if I pretend to faint oh God, during the aria, too. right? If I clutch my arm and fall over, right. nobody's going to say anything. And then they'll <laughs> carry me off. I just stay down and it'll be over. You know, you yeah. think you have a show like that. And I just thought it was the worst and I wanted to quit afterwards. Yeah. And then the next day, the New York Times came out and said and singled me out for like, you know, the best performance of the evening and, it, and gave me this incredible rapturous paragraph. And you think, well. Yeah. What'd you learn from that? What's the lesson? The lesson is what you feel is not necessarily what people experience mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, um, I think that performance is much more important than perfect singing. And what makes- We agree on this. Oh, yeah. That's good. And, yeah. and what makes opera really boring often is singers who are interested in just singing perfectly or beautifully or mm -hmm. whatever. And I, I think that the art form is about creating drama in music. And that's what it was called when it was start, started, drama per musica, mm -hmm. not opera. Mm -hmm. um, not work. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. so I really, when I'm having a day when it's really challenging, the more absorbed I am in the performance, mm -hmm. the more likely I am to forget about how challenged I feel by whatever's happening vocally. Mm -hmm. And then it just sort of falls back into habit. Now, the other aspect of this, and I was talking with Glass about this a little bit, is um, just practice. You know, when you, when you have put something into your muscle memory so much that you get in front of 3,000 people and you, you can't possibly remember every technical principle, but it's ingrained mm -hmm. and your body does it. Mm -hmm. And that's the state that I like to be in. And when I'm in that state, it's less likely for me to get really upset and nervous, even if my voice is feeling not great. And as my teacher would say, there are about two days a year, your right. voice is going to feel perfect. I know. And, and those, it's never on stage. And it's never on stage. <laughs> it's always in the shower. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting used to it. Yeah. I feel like when the, on those days where I can absolutely sing anything for as long as I want, uh, the next day is shot. Yeah. Like I am done. Yeah. I can't sing at all. Well, it's tricky too for me because if I, I'm not one of these singers who can take a three days off between shows and then the day of the show I warm up and sing. Mm -hmm. I have to be singing because I like to keep my voice pliable and alive. And predictable. And predictable. And so, but it's a question of how much I sing and what I sing. To balance. Uh, so, you know, tomorrow we'll have a brush up rehearsal for Akhenaten and it, I'll be thinking about mm -hmm. I think I'll just, you know, mark the rest of this or I want to do, I want to sing through the aria because mm -hmm. I want to feel that before mm -hmm. the matinee tomorrow. So it's always, and, and it depends also how tired you are, how much you've eaten, how much you've slept, how much you've flown. If you went out to drinks. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that's the other thing I don't do when I'm singing mostly is drink. And yeah. it's disappointing to me because I really like to drink. Well, it's so but, social, you know, yeah. it's a, it's and, but I just I've gotten to the point now where it's it must have been a year since I've had a drink because I've been working nonstop for a mm -hmm. year, and I'd rather not get sick. 
I, I don't sleep as well when I drink. Same with me. Uh, my my cords are just a tiny, teeny, tiny bit more brittle. And you got to push just a little bit more. Right. And, and the then, next day is a little harder exactly. to sing. Yeah. And for me, I just decided, you know what? These are formative times. You know, I'm not being paid a million dollars a year to sing a concert here mm-hmm. and a concert there. So, you know, I'd rather just play it safe. And yeah. that's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make, um, and I save a ton of money. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny you were talking about mu- muscle memory and and getting through a performance no matter what. I'm I'm finding that the Philip Glass Akhenaten in particular demands that, like there, there's you don't have a choice because it's the 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 music is so relentless and it just doesn't stop. You can't. There's no rubato. You can't no. like fudge your way through remembering what word comes next. No. You have and to also, really know it cold. You're juggling a ball or walking That's down a it. flight of stairs or 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 looking with incredible focus yeah. or moving incredibly slowly and you your mind that does take a, a portion of your mind. You know, when yeah. I'm moving my arm from the bottom of the stage to the top of the ceiling very slowly over mm-hmm. the course of 4 minutes. If I start thinking about my singing, it will speed up for a minute, and then I go, "Oh no, slow that down." So it's yep. you've got to have them existing simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. Do you, uh, what's your favorite uh, repertoire to sing? Is it is it this type of thing? Is it uh, is it Gluck? Is it Monteverdi? What's what's uh, uh, what's your bag? It's hard to know. I mean, I get really engaged in everything I'm uh-huh. doing. I love the Gluck. I uh-huh. love the Orfeo. It feels like a real it's beautiful, beautiful music. Too. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I love, love, love Handel. Mm-hmm. I've done so many Handel operas and productions of mm-hmm. them, and it feels like home base for me in, mm-hmm. in many ways. And my technique has bloomed from there. Mm-hmm. So I sing Philip Glass with a lot of what I've learned how to do in Handel. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm singing over a brass section, and I'm singing in a different way. But I don't believe Handel should be done in this you know, um, anemic kind Buttoned of, up, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it should have a full-bodied, exciting you know it was real drama and the castrati were not holding back for sure yeah for sure yeah. i mean any any report you read from casanova to uh whatever that bernie or whatever his name is who wrote all the uh, 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 Bern, uh, uh bernheimer yeah exactly sure. mm-hmm. martin you know, bernheimer yeah they they all write about the castrati in this full-throated full-throttle way mm-hmm. so uh, but at the same time Akhenaten is a kind of dream role in that um i feel it displays and and employs everything I've spent my life doing, both my intellect, my uh, curiosity, my physicality, my 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 vocal resources, and uh, also this sort of um, uh, sense of tapping into a world that's three thousand years old and having to hold the air of the auditorium in that space mm-hmm. for three hours mm-hmm. when I'm on stage. So, um, so I love doing it for that reason too. So, uh, you know, and and since you mentioned Monteverdi, I did my first Monteverdi opera when I was eighteen years old, and the way that language is expressed in music in Monteverdi mm-hmm. is something that I like to do even in Philip Glass, even when I'm singing just ah, mm-hmm. I want to be communicating with music and that began with Monteverdi. So it's, you know, another kind of pillar for me. So that's not a very good answer to just say everything. Well, sure. Uh, If you weren't in music, if you weren't singing and doing what you were doing, what would you be doing? I as I I would enjoy running an opera house. I would enjoy uh, directing, I think, as well. or maybe some combination of the two. And um, if I weren't doing music at all, I I love cooking. Uh, I in New York I have um, 
my kitchen all set up and I have about 15 people over for a five course meal once a week and we call it supper club once a week yeah um, and it's gotten very sort of easy I mean sometimes it's once every 10 days depending on what's sure, happening sure. but uh, it's like a little salon in its own way do you, you know? do singing or anything or no, no I mean it's happened but mm-hmm. um, it's about all different kinds of artists yeah. you know from cab- and not only artists you know and lawyers and administrators and you know journalists mm-hmm. and all kinds of people mm-hmm. who come together and I like to set up adversarial relationships I do and, the same thing. you know yeah I've, it makes for an interesting evening and you know some people leave and some people stay and um, and so that's a big passion of mine and through that I've gotten you know not bad at cooking complicated things mm-hmm. and I really like that um, it feels similar to the creation process in some ways but less pressured so I wouldn't I wouldn't mind you know opening a restaurant or something like sure well anthony i know you've got to go i really appreciate you talking to me it's a great podcast thank you so much for having me thanks well that was anthony roth costanzo very uh very nice guy i you know i i really have had such good luck with my guests i love sitting down and i feel you know you feel like you know them i definitely know them a little bit better sometimes i trick myself into feeling like i I know them really well but you know that's impossible Needless to say, it is nice to get to know these artists that work at such a high level. Uh, I want to thank Anthony for being on my show. It was kind of tough getting it together, and we finally did. And and when we did, it was really a a joy to to spend a little time with him. So thank you, Anthony. I want to thank Greg Geiger for helping me with my theme song. Thank you, Greg. Still loving it, buddy. Go to LAClassical.com. Tell him I said hi. And I'm talking into this fancy Shure microphone, SM7B. I know my voice sounds better than it normally does to all you people that see me every day, so I want to thank Michael Nielsen for that. He's a co-owner at Ninja Tracks. They, they make all the, the big blockbuster movie, uh, trailer mu- uh, movie trailer music that you see on TV and on the interwebs. So uh, check him out at michaelnielsenmusic.com. He's got a great series of uh, guitar and pedal instruction and review videos. He's a really funny guy. He's super... Uh, smart and 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 really just a, a swell dude. So go and check him out too. Tell him I said hi. And I also want to thank all you guys for listening. Couldn't do it without you. I love this part of my week. It's one of my favorite days. Uh, I hope you enjoy it too. Hope you have a nice Monday. We'll see you next week. Until next time. Get onto my show.